morning, church. So this is going to be awesome, apparently. Lots to talk about in that passage. Uh, we're going we're gonna to take two weeks on this passage, so don't worry too much. On July uh, 5th, 2018, there's a man named Ardash Srivastava uh, traveling on a train in India. And he noticed something unusual in, in the train. Uh, there, there was about 25 young ladies in the, in the train, in the car that he was riding in, um, aged 10 to 14. And they all looked upset. Um, they looked like something, something bad was happening to them. And so he began to suspect foul play. And so he, he said, okay, what am I going to do about this? He pulled out his phone and he sent a tweet. This is the tweet. It says, I'm traveling on such and such a train. In my coach, there are 25 girls. All are juvenile. Some of them are crying and some feel unsecure. Um, so he sends this tweet uh, the, to the, the rail ministry. The rail ministry passes the tweet on to the police, and 30 minutes later, the, the police board this train car, and they make a couple of arrests. Uh, they, arrest, they arrest a couple of men who turn out to be the girls' captors, um, and it turned out that, that these men had captured these young ladies and were transporting them for the purpose of human trafficking. And so if not for this tweet, this group of 25 young ladies would have been, they would have been sold essentially into slavery. Uh, and this is, and that's, that's a story with a happy ending. Uh, there's a lot that don't, in fact, in 2016 in India, 9,000 children were victims of human trafficking. What, so... So we have this discussion then in, in the Bible, right? We have this discussion in today's passage, and it's going to talk about slaves. Um, what does the Bible have to say for, for the real victims of slavery that exist today, and what does it have to say for us as we exist in a world, world where slavery exists? This is a pretty intense passage, right? And, and, you know, up until now in this series, we've been, you know, there's been... A lot of stuff that's in Ephesians that's been not that controversial, right? The first half was theology, and then we got into, um, the, starting in chapter 4, we got started getting some instructions. Uh, but they were pretty innocuous instructions, right? Things like uh, pursue unity in the church and get rid of anger and bitterness. and Great, we're all on board. And then we come to something like today, right? And, and Paul addresses three groups, and he says... You know, he, he addresses children. He says, children, obey your parents. And if you're like me and you have young kids, you want to shout amen. And uh, then, he, then he, says, and he says, wives, submit to your husbands. And I will not make a joke about that one because that's... <laughs> but that's, all, that's a really serious thing. We, we have to talk about what do we do with that. And then, and, and so that's like controversial, right? And probably... Different people in this room would have different views on what that means and how we handle that. And then he says, slaves, obey your masters. And, and it, 
I feel pretty safe in saying that none of us in the room are on board for, for reinforcing slavery. What are we supposed to do with a passage like this? What are we supposed to do with a passage like this? Now, now we come from, from a, a tradition within Christianity called Anabaptism, and, and we're one of the sub-traditions. We're called the Mennonite Brethren, and, and part of our tradition is that we value the Bible highly. In fact, our confession of faith says this. It says, uh, we accept the Bible as the infallible word of God and the authoritative guide for faith and practice. And so it's been our practice for our whole history to, to kind of give ourselves over to the Bible and to let it shape us. What do we do with a passage like this? And what is a passage like this calling us to? So what we're going to do is, like I said, we're going to take two weeks on this passage. This, this passage that Donnell read it, we had her read the whole thing because it's, it's a unit, okay? And it's what's called a household code, and we'll talk about that a little bit later on. But it functions as a unit. So we're going to take two weeks on it. And, uh, and what we're going to do today is we're going to kind of ask the question, okay, how do we even read something like this? Like, what are we supposed to do if we accept the Bible, if we want to honor what the Bible says? How do we read something like this? And then we're going to work our way through the slaves passage because that's the, the one that's the most extreme. And then that's going to set us up. And then next week we'll have the wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives conversation. So don't miss that. So... Here we are. Here we go. Okay. We've got the Bible, and the Bible seems to be tolerating, if not promoting, uh, the institution of slavery that, that for us is, like we would all agree, is an unjust and, and uh, dehumanizing institution. What do we do with that? Well, the way I see it, we have three options. Number one would be to save slavery you know, the Bible says slaves obey your masters, so somehow to affirm slavery. Now, we're not going to go there. Uh, some Christians in history have gone there, sadly. Uh, that's not just a hypothetical thing. We could, we could affirm slavery. We could disregard the Bible. We could say, this old book, it doesn't have anything to say for today, therefore chuck it. Right? And certainly there are people who would argue for that kind of approach. See, the Bible is so antiquated. Um, we're not going to go there either because we're committed to the Bible. So what, what I want to advocate for is option three. Read more deeply. Okay, when we come to a place where, where there's kind of this tension with the Bible, we, we need to let it prompt us to read more deeply. Uh, theolog theologian Greg Boyd uh, has this great, this great illustration where he says, you know, if, I'm, if I was like going to meet my wife somewhere in the city, and uh, I, I'm walking down one side of the road on my way to the coffee shop or whatever, and she happens to be on the other side, and I see her walking there, but she doesn't see me. And if I, and if I see a panhandler come up to, to ask her for money... I've been married to my wife for like 30 plus years. I know her very well. Everything I know about her leads me to think she's going to be kind and gracious to this guy. But if what I see across the street is, you know, she, she like pushes him away and yells at him, 
what I'm not going to say is, oh, I guess that's what my wife is like. What I'm going to assume, having known her, is there must be something else going on here. So maybe he said something to her that, that made her have to do that. Maybe it's a prank. Like He's going to start looking for more information. And he says, that's sometimes what we have to do with the Bible. Where we have, when we have this reality, like a reality like slavery, and we have this, this thing in the Bible, and, and their intention, we need to let it prompt us to read more deeply. And so that's what we're going to try and do today. Uh, and, and we're going to practice that with this slavery piece. Okay, so we're going to get set up to read this slavery, Slaves Obey Your Masters section. I'm going to start by just giving us uh, some principles for how we read a passage like this in the Bible. And this is not exhaustive. This is just some basic stuff. Um, so, first principle, if you're taking notes, is first century or bust. So the Bible, the New Testament was written in the first century. For the Old Testament, we should go back a few hundred more years, okay? But it was written in the first century, which means if we want to truly understand it, the way to understand it is to, uh, is to kind of reconstruct a first century understanding of it. And that's important because sometimes, as, as Christians today, our, our uh, understanding of the Bible is shaped very much by the 16th century because Martin Luther and the Reformation, that's a big moment, an important moment in Christian history. And then uh, the 20th and 21st centuries where we had the rise of modern Western Christianity. And those are important pieces of the puzzle. But if we want to understand the Bible, uh, like really understand it, we need to try and reconstruct that first century understanding. So we talked earlier in this series about, how, uh, about the word faith and how nowadays we kind of think of faith as belief in uh, in a set of ideas, but in the first century, it meant, the Greek word pistis, which we translate faith, meant something more like allegiance. That's a better reading then, because that's what they meant in the first century. So that's principle one. Principle number two, someone else's mail. When you're reading the Bible, you're reading someone else's mail. The letter to the Ephesians is the letter to the Ephesians. And so I've said it before and I've said it again, uh, the Bible is written for us, but it was not written to us or about us. The Bible is written for us, but not to us or about us. And so we believe God intended, God inspired the writings of these things and, and that he intended for us to read it. But that when the authors wrote this stuff down, they were addressing people in the first century, they weren't explicitly addressing us. And so what we're doing here is we're actually, we're reading Paul's instructions for the Ephesians. And we're saying, what, should, what can we learn today? And a lot of the stuff, we take it and we say, yeah, absolutely. That's something that applies today, right? Get rid of, uh, get rid of anger and bitterness. That still applies today. Pursue unity in the church. That still applies today. But there's other stuff. You get, for instance, later in this series, we'll get to Second uh, Timothy, and Paul in Second Timothy, he writes, uh, "Come visit me as soon as you can. When you come, bring the cloak that I left at Troas and bring my books and my papers." And I don't care, you know, how how committed you are to the Bible. 
None of us are buying plane tickets to fly to Troas. Okay, it's in Turkey, by the way. None of us are going over there and digging to try and find Paul's cloak and his, and his books and his papers. Why? Because it's someone else's mail. He wrote that to Timothy. And so whenever we take instructions from the Bible, what we're actually doing is learning from instructions that were given to someone else. And some of them, we, ha- we can make the argument that they still apply to Christians now. Some of them, like the cloak from Troas, that's not the case. So we're reading someone else's mail. And then principle three, because of number one and two, context matters. The historical and cultural and biblical context matters. The, the, the background info will help you to understand the Bible and help to guard you against uh, misunderstanding it in a possibly catastrophic way. Now, those of us who do this for a living, we, like, we, we get Bible software, and it's really cool. Like, <laughs> maybe I'm the only person who thinks it's cool. But, like, it's really fun. You click on one word, and it'll, like, open up all your books that talk about that word. And it costs hundreds of dollars. It's really high-powered stuff. It's complex. Um, most of us aren't going to go that far. Um, so, you know, does that mean, then, that, that for the average person, we can't understand the Bible for ourselves? And, and I would say no, but I would say it's good to do what you can to equip yourself. And so I always recommend... Uh, getting a good study Bible. If you're, you know, if you're going to buy a Bible anyways, get one that's got some study helps. I get asked to recommend Bibles sometimes. Um, I'll tell you now, the one that I always recommend is the NIV Cultural Background Study Bible. And uh, this one, it's edited by Keener and Walton, who are like the best of the best. And so they're top-notch scholars. They've written, like, really serious stuff. But they wrote this Bible for the everyday person. And honestly, when we get to the slaves discussion, like, three-quarters of what we're going to say is in that Bible. And so if you're thinking, you know, if if you're thinking you just want to have that basic ability to to just understand what's going on in the biblical text, um, a good study Bible is a good option. And this one's my favorite. I use it every week. Um, because context matters. If you're reading the Bible out of context, it's almost like you're not really reading it. Okay, so those are some principles. First century or bust. We're reading someone else's mail and context matters. Uh, that's really just scratching the surface. Now, uh, one of our goals here at South Langley Church is to equip God's people to give you opportunities to learn. And so if you'd like to dig deeper into how to read the Bible... I'll just mention our our Table Talks uh, series of seminars. The first one is coming up a week from today, and the topic is how to read the Bible. And so so Table Talks are a series of one-night interactive theological conversations, and uh, we've gotten our denomination's brightest minds, and we've brought them in, so this one's being taught by Michael Zook from Columbia Bible College. Um, It's going to be great. So that, that's next Sunday night. You can sign up at the Welcome Center. I'd encourage you to do so. So, with all that said, let's talk about slaves and masters. Here's what Paul writes. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. 
Try to please them all the time, not just when they're watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. So the approach that Paul takes when he's addressing slavery is not the approach we want him to take. Like, we, we want him to say, no more slavery, right? Like, we, we, he's talking to masters. We want him to say, masters, uh, let all your slaves go. Why, Paul? Why, like, he, he seems to be just um, giving instructions for how to make the institution of slavery a little bit less uncomfortable. Why would he not dismantle it? Is Paul pro-slavery? I can't think that. Uh, if, even if you look back in Ephesians, uh, we saw in Ephesians 1, he talked about redemption as God's people. And we, we talked back in October how that's a reference to Israel's uh, Exodus story, which is a story where they were slaves in Egypt. God heard their cries and their suffering, and he liberated them. And Paul takes that story and not only celebrates it, but he says, and also, that's what God has done for all of us spiritually. We're all spiritually uh, people who were enslaved and now we're free. The whole thing he's doing here is celebrating liberation. And then if you look outside of Ephesians, Paul wrote things like this. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We're not going to do it today. You'll have a little bit of time in life group. Uh, but if you, if you look, there's, we have every reason to believe that Paul believed in the dignity of every human being and believed that an institution like slavery would be, would be morally wrong. Why does he say what he says then? So let's think about this. First century or bust... Someone else's mail, context matters. Like I mentioned before, uh, this, this whole section about wives and husbands and children and parents and slaves and masters, this is part of what was known as a household code. And, and a household code is not something that Paul invented. In fact, it's, it seems like it was invented by Aristotle. So the Greek philosopher Aristotle, about 400 years before Jesus, um, had a piece of writing where he laid out a similar thing where he said, here's how a household in the Greek Empire and the, later the Roman Empire will run. And he addressed the same three groups in the same order, wives and husbands, fathers and children, uh, slaves and masters. And, the re and then Aristotle wrote that and there were several others before Paul. And the reason why this was an important genre in the Roman Empire was because they were trying to build this new enlightened society and they thought as the, they, they thought that the, the household, the elite Roman household or Greek household was a microcosm of the society and as the house goes, so goes the society. And so they did a lot of thinking about how they wanted their households to run. This was very important. 
within the Roman Empire, there were uh, certain groups who didn't run their households the Roman way. Now, they always say, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. What they don't say is, if you didn't, you were treated with a lot of suspicion. Are you against the Roman way of life? Can you be trusted? People like this were, were likely to get in trouble in the Roman Empire. One such group was the Jews, and then Christianity grew out of Judaism, and they ran their households kind of differently from how the Greco-Roman world did. And so they were viewed with a lot of suspicion. So all of this is going on, and Paul is entering into the con- that, same, that conversation. So he talks about marriage, he talks about parenting, and then he talks about slavery. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with deep respect and fear. Now, remember, we're reading someone else's mail. Paul is writing, Paul is writing to the slaves who have become Christians who are part of the church in Ephesus in the first century. Those are the recipients of this letter. He's not writing for uh, slaves, you know, in, in the 1800s in the United States. He's not writing to slaves in India today. He's writing for this particular group of people. And he's saying, for, for you guys, my instruction for you guys is I'm going to encourage you to obey your masters. Now, remember, first century or bust. So what even was slavery in the first century? And what we know about slavery in the first century is, yes, it was very unjust. They were subject to abuse. They had very few rights. And yet, there was another side to it. Slavery was, was integrated into the uh, economy, the Roman economy, in a more sophisticated way than, say, North American slavery 200 years ago. And so uh, at any given time, the population of any given Roman city would be one-third to one-half slaves. And it was a similar but different brand of slavery. Slaves back then, they, they had the opportunity to earn, uh, earn money on the side. Uh, they even had the opportunity to earn their freedom. And here's an interesting thing. When slaves, became, when slaves earned their freedom, if they, were, if they became wealthy or middle-class people, often the freed slaves would purchase slaves of their own because it was kind of part of how the economy worked. In fact, in many cases, being a slave was a better position than being a free peasant. If you're a free peasant, you're trying to scrape out a living in a, in a very unequal society. If, if you were a slave in a, in a good household, you were under the protection of that household. You had your, your basic needs met. And so it's, it's an unjust institution, but it was not the worst you could do in that time. Abolition was not on the radar in the Roman Empire. No one was even talking about it. And, and when you think about it, if, if one-third to one-half of the slaves, uh, of the population were slaves, what happens if you free them? 
all of a sudden half the population of your city is unemployed and homeless and has no way to make ends meet. What's going to happen? They're going to have to turn to crime or starve. This is not a good situation. So they're kind of in a tough spot, right? Uh, and then the other, thing to, uh, the other thing to understand is that Christianity, it was not like today where Christianity had a voice in society. Christians were a, a powerless minority group. Okay, uh, like I said, they were viewed with a lot of suspicion. They weren't in a position of power. And so this thing that Christians do, you know, in the modern Western world where we try to, uh, you know, try to gather power and, and you know, force a particular uh, vision on society, that would have been so foreign to the first century Christians. There, there would have been no, they had no voice. If they could somehow have gotten all the Christians together and, and they marched to Rome and said to Caesar, Caesar, you must end slavery, they'd have been more likely to get crucified than free any slaves. That's the reality. So, with all that in mind, Paul says to himself, how can I help these Ephesian Christians live, live out the values of the way of Jesus in this setting with all these pressures and considerations? The ideal would be no slavery. But they're not in a position to pursue that ideal. So he says, I'm going to do like the Greeks and the Romans do. I'm going to write a household code. And I'm going to keep what's good about the, about the Greek and Roman household codes, but I'm going to build in the values of the way of Jesus into my household code. And so that's what he does. And so he writes this thing, and, and uh, the Greco-Roman household codes were all about how a powerful man should rule over his, his wife and his children and his slaves, and how they should submit to him. But what does Paul say at the beginning of his household code? He says, submit to one another. Not everyone submit to one powerful man, submit to one another. He's building in Equality. And then he doesn't tell the slaves, uh, obey or else. He treats them as human beings. He gives them a reason. He says, serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Work with enthusiasm as though you're working for the Lord rather than people. Because here's what's going to happen. These slaves are becoming Christians. And lots of slaves became Christians because the church actually cared about slaves. Interesting. These slaves are becoming Christians, and they're going to come back to work, and they're not going to become rebellious and say, oh, I'm I, you know, equal in the sight of God. I shouldn't have to do this. No, they're going to come back to work, and they're going to, uh, they're going to work harder, work more diligently, and all of a sudden, instead of increasing the suspicion around Christianity in the Roman Empire, all of a sudden, Christianity, the message of Jesus, now gets a voice in that household hey, there might be something to this message of Jesus, this way of Jesus. And so they're actually uh, advancing the cause of Jesus in the midst of this, this bad situation. And then he finishes off and he, 
And here's what he does. He has, unlike any other household code, he has requirements for the slave masters. He has requirements for the slaves. He has requirements for the masters. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threaten them. Remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. So Paul here is talking. Remember, he's, this is going to a church. So he's writing to Christians. He's writing to people who own slaves and became Christians. What should they do? Should they free all their slaves? Remember, be, being a slave in many cases was a better situation than being a free peasant. It, like, if he cuts these slaves loose, like, they could be in trouble. And so Paul says, you know what? What's going to be better for these guys? The way that you masters can serve these guys better is uh, don't cut them loose. Keep them under the protection and provision of your household, but be kind to them. Don't threaten them. Don't abuse them. Treat them as the way you would treat Christ. That's what he means when he says treat your slaves in the same way. And so, he, and so Paul actually builds in that equality as well. He's, giving, he's uh, giving requirements not only to the slave but to the master. And what we'll see also is... He's giving, he gives requirements not only to children, obey your parents, but he also is going to give requirements to the parents, the fathers, and not only to the wives, submit to your husbands, but he's also going to say, husbands, love your wives. He's building in this mutual equality and uh, mutual uh, submission, and he's building in equality into this household code. So Paul doesn't try to abolish slavery, although as one commentator puts it, uh, this passage puts a time bomb next to slavery. But for this particular setting and for these particular people, the best way, he discerned that the best way to live out the way of Jesus was for the slaves to work diligently with good attitudes and for the masters to be generous and understanding and provide well for their slaves. And in doing so, they would, uh, it would reflect well on the message of Christianity in the Roman Empire and it would create good in the lives of many human beings. Material good, tangible good in the lives of many human beings. Okay, that was a lot. So, some takeaways. Let's sum this up. What are some takeaways? We've talked about how we read the Bible, and we've talked about this Slaves and Masters passage. What are some takeaways? Okay, number one is read more deeply. Okay, it would have been too easy to say, ah, the Bible condones slavery. Read more deeply. There's so much there. Okay, and, and so encourage us as followers of Jesus to be learners. Remember, study Bible, table talks. Okay, uh, number two, big word, epistemological humility. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. So epistemological humility means being humble about what we know. There's always so much going on in a Bible text that, that again, the best, way to, um, the best way to approach the Bible and approach any conversation about the Bible is as a humble learner because... Because usually we're, we're doing our best to understand, but it takes a lot to truly master any portion of the Bible. 
Number three, faith belongs in real life, right? That's what Paul is doing here. He's, he's giving them a household code saying, rearrange the way that your day-to-day existence looks so that it will reflect the way of Jesus. Chapter one to three, he unpacked theology for them, and now he's saying that theology matters in everyday life. I wonder what ways God is calling us to reshape, reshape our rhythms, our everyday rhythms, the way our families operate, the way we make economic choices, the way we prioritize things in order to better integrate the values of Jesus. Number four, making the best of it. That's the title of John Stackhouse's book on Christian ethics. And in it, he argues for essentially what Paul is doing here today in this this passage. He says, this is a broken world. There's, you know, there's, there are systemic evils in the world. And some of them we're, we're unable to change. So our responsibility as human beings is to just, is to do our best as followers of Jesus to bring about the most good even in the midst of an imperfect situation. That's what Paul is doing here with slavery. And there are things in our society today that, that maybe, you know, we can't, that things don't go the way that, that we believe they should. And yet we have this ability just in our lives to say how amidst, amidst this injustice, amidst this sin perhaps, how can I bring about the most good? What's the most faithful way for me uh, to live out the peace and justice that Jesus calls us to? And then fifth, the dignity of all humans because it does seem very clear that Paul is building in and moving toward the dignity and equality of all human beings. He treats slaves as real people with rights. He tells masters to be just and kind. He says there's, there's no Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female. This is someone who, who is trying to get us to see the the value of every human being, and that message per- pervades uh, the Bible and pervades the message of Jesus. And it has implications for how we deal with, with people in society. How do, how do we build dignity and equality into the lives of people of other races, and immigrants and indigenous peoples? How about people with disabilities? How are we supporting their their dignity and equality because because back then Paul had this revolutionary idea that that the mas- the masters mattered but that the slaves mattered too how are we carrying forward that idea today there are a lot of conversations we could have here but i i think maybe the best thing to do is just to point us to our missionaries of the month abajit and mita um you know, I, I couldn't help but think of them this week. They're, and they're working in India, which has a human trafficking problem. It has a child labor problem. Uh, it, has, uh, it has severe child abuse problems and uh, problems of abandoned children. Um, 
and they're doing work with Step International um, to, uh, to, to bring education and development to try and undo some of these cycles of poverty. And man, God bless them for doing that. And I'm, so, and I'm so glad that we as South Langley Church have partnered with them financially and through prayer. Um, and I'm going to, and this afternoon I'm, I'm going to just post, post a link to their work uh, on, our, on our Facebook and I invite you to check it out. Um, so be praying for them. You know, send them a card, send them some love. You can donate through their website if you want. Um, because the... Because the difference between us and the Ephesians, as we, as we read their mail, the difference between them and us is that we are much better positioned to make a difference, to make a, to make a big difference in the lives of people who, uh, who are oppressed and unjustly treated. And so I would invite us to be people who do that this week and, and who do that in our lives because what we learned is that, the, because Ephesians 6 is someone else's mail, and we're learning from it, and what we learn uh, and what we need to take away for today is that the way of Jesus is to care about the dignity of all human beings. More next week, but we'll leave it there. Uh, I'll invite the worship team up, and we're going to move to communion.